Looking for a new career? Welcome to Do HVAC Training Service Center in North Charleston. Enroll today in our comprehensive HVAC training hands-on field experience-based program covering troubleshooting, maintenance, installation, and more on various HVAC systems and ductwork. We offer EPA and NAEP preparation and testing along with various certifications. Enjoy payment options. Achieve certification in under five months. Enroll now for your new journey of skill development and career advancement. Log on to DEWHVACTRAININGSC.COM to inquire. Hello, beautiful people. How are you? It is I, it is Tim, the host of the podcast, the creator of the New Evangelicals. It's so good to be with you. This is a special Friday broadcast. I, um, well, let me start here. I'm not sure if you know this because I'm realizing how siloed our followers and listeners are depending on the medium that you listen to um, our content through, but Trip Fuller and I went out to Springfield, Missouri last week to check out the location for our upcoming Theology Beer Camp event in October. Now, we did this last year. We have a different location this year. So Trip and I went out. We met the church, met the team, and we also did a free podcast event that night and had about 35, 40 people come out. Um, I never drank so much in my entire life, and we recorded a lot of content of me and Trip tasting different beers from breweries in the Springfield area who are are uh, sponsoring the event but this you know podcast I'm sharing with you is that podcast event that we did uh, now it was Tuesday night so I wanted I wanted you to get a taster if you will <laughs> um, or a little tease of what is to come at beer camp this is a longer podcast now for trip he tells me all the time that two hours is, is like a warm-up for me I'm like dude how does anyone listen to a two-hour podcast episode but here we are I'm gonna play the whole thing because trip actually does he actually teases his opening um, like monologue for beer camp to the audience. And the reason why he did that is because him and I have been talking a lot about the need for people like him who are so brilliant and so intelligent to find ways to communicate things in very clear and understandable terms to people like me who do not have the same academic background at all. And so Trip is like, great, let me test out my opener for beer camp to you in the audience and we'll get feedback and then we'll talk about it on the podcast. So this is a really fun episode. I wanted to play it for you, kind of give you a little taste of what's to come. Um, I also want to let you know, and I have to update our little beer camp teaser, um, that we have updated the roster to now include Derek Webb. Yep, that's right. The Derek Webb, Trey Pearson, and oh my God, I always do this. The guy from Jars of Clay. I, I got to look it up now because I feel like a total buffoon. But yeah, the guy from Jars of Clay, what is his name? I'm pulling it up. Um, Dan Hasseltine. All right, he's coming as well as our musical guest. And. We also now have Flamey Grant coming. Yes, I'm not sure if you've been following the story about Flamey Grant chopping the Christian iTunes music charts for the first time, um, which what I'm saying is it's the first time a drag queen has ever chopped uh, topped the charts. Yeah, Flamey Grant is coming to beer camp. That's super exciting. So there's only more of a reason to get your ticket. Um, if you use promo code TNE Godpod, you'll get 25 bucks off of your ticket. You're looking at hanging out with amazing theologians like Leah Robinson, Roberto Shea Espinoza, John Dominic Crossan, Trip Fuller, Grace Jisoon Kim, um, and then a bunch of awesome podcasts. Dan Koch, I'll be there. Pete Ends and the Bible for Normal People will be there. Kevin Garcia. And now we 
have Trey Pearson, Derek Webb, Dan Hasseltine, and Flamey Grant all coming. Your ticket includes all the beer you want to drink, and even if you're not a huge beer drinker like me, there are some amazing flavors to at least try. So this is going to be a great event. It's Springfield, Missouri, October 19th through 21st. Get a ticket. Ticket. Come on out. Hang out with us. Um, but that's what this episode is to do. Uh, is to is to tease you with, I should say. Um, this is one take, friends. I'm just going to roll with it, so forgive the hiccups. One last thing I want to mention to you. This is pretty big TNE news. We just announced it yesterday on our Instagram stories. We are writing a book. I have signed a deal with Erdman's Publishing um, on behalf of TNE, and we are writing a book to kind of get our story out there, which is so cool. One of the, I think, most unique things about this process is that TNE and Erdman's are the ones in contract. It's not just me. So I am the author, so the work will be copywritten in my name, but the contract is between TNE and Erdman's, and that means that TNE, the organization and the board that I'm accountable to, they retain all publication rights. And that's really important for us to be transparent because I think sometimes people start these things, then they get their own book deal and they kind of start building their own brand. That's not what we wanted to do. And the other cool thing about that is all of the finances that we get from the book, whether it's the advance or royalties, go right to TNE as the organization. And then the board and myself will negotiate my cut of that. So it just makes everything a lot more transparent. So I'm super excited. This is very early on. I will announce more details like the name and and the direction of the book as I have that kind of figured out in my head. But the deal is done. We have signed and a book is coming, um, which is just, wow, overwhelmingly cool. Um, I'm a little nervous, to be honest with you, but I'm also super excited. I wanted to say, folks, thank you so much for listening to the podcast, because honestly... It just means the world. It means so much to know that people listen to this. Hopefully, the content that we put out in the podcast, and now we're, we're really focused on our YouTube channel and growing different types of content. Hopefully, this stuff is helping all of you to really think about um, you know better ways forward in your own life and in, and in your own faith journey. And the last thing I'll say, and again, if you heard this before, cool, but if you don't follow us on Instagram, you probably don't know this. We are working feverishly to kind of create TNE 2.0. I've been thinking a lot about content. I've been thinking a lot about how do we really push the needle forward? How do we really make the change in culture that we need to see? I've been following, just as you know, so many things when it comes to Christian nationalism and how they're mobilizing. And I really do think we are at a pivotal moment in our history um, and we have work to do. So I am working with some amazing people to get something together. There's more details to come. Right now, internally, we're calling it Project Amplify. Um, But this will be a pretty big game changer. So there are things in motion. There are things happening. There are things that are coming. So thank you for hanging in. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Trip. If you want to support the work that we do, we are a nonprofit organization. This is how I'm able to make a trip to Missouri to go to this, you know, beer camp taster thing and do this podcast. It happens because of the generosity of people like you. So if you want to donate, all donations are tax deductible. Um, There's a link in our show notes. You can click on it. One of the things I will say is right now, to give you a little bit of a tangible need, we are looking to hire our first staff person. Uh, The work for just one person on staff is becoming too much. We're starting to really max out our volunteers and we don't want to burn them out. So we really think that a staff position is next. So we're looking for essentially to raise $2,000 a month in additional funding. So that's 100 people who can give 20 bucks a month. That's 200 people who can give $10 a month. That is one person who can give $2,000 
$2,000 a month. Wink, wink. If you're rich out there and you're listening, you like our work, you want to help us out. Um, but you get my point. So click on the link, set up a, a recurring donation. It helps us out so much. It's helping us plan for the future to really change um, the way, hopefully, that um, evangelicalism and Christianity uh, is seen in our public sphere and trying to really combat the dangers of Christian nationalism. All right, long intro, but I want to get all these things out there. Here is my podcast session with Trip that was recorded in Missouri. Talk to you all later on. Thanks for being here. Yeah, you definitely should use a mic. Uh, there we go. Awesome. Eric, do you need anything from us? Because I don't want to find out 20 minutes later that we didn't do something sound-wise. And I'm saying it like I can see him even though there's two giant lights. Angel lights. We're good? Excellent. Hi, Noah. Thank you for editing that out. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Anything else you want to say? I have no idea what you said before that. I was just sitting down. You know what we did today? N- no, but uh, Bryn got me this cool hat. Me too. And cool. yeah, he has his own. She picked them out to match our personalities, apparently. And uh, I have a 15 year old who I was like, look at this hat I got. And he's like, dude, dad, those are in style. And I'm going to go viral on, on TikTok now. He's just, no, going. he's like, I'm taking it when you get home. <laughs> and I was like, all right, but we're very glad you're here. Yes. Thank uh, you. We've had a lot of fun. Uh, we got to meet a lot of the staff today talking about beer camp coming up. We got to visit a bunch of uh, breweries that are bringing beer. And one of us really experienced each of the breweries and the other one, has drank more today than he has in all of his life, but he's a new evangelical. <laughs> or a, right now, I think you might need to change your name to wet evangelical, <laughs> which means that you've drank more than two tasters in 24 hours and didn't lose your witness. Thank you very much. Thank you. No, Don't no, but I've actually that. planned something, Tim. <laughs> we'll be thrilled. You, of your favorite beer of the day. You have you. To, it's right there. It was awesome. Um, We're going to see if you know how to open craft breweries that can their tall boys correctly do you just twist it i'm not saying anything i think it's this is part I mean, of the fun i have no idea besides twisting but it doesn't seem like it's very designed for that so you, oh like ooh. that see did i do it yeah but okay. here's the best part go ahead finish opening it well am i gonna spill it everywhere no, this, this no. is not my church i don't want to be that person they're about to have 350 day drinkers in their church for three days so it's good there we, i did it i know but okay there's beer in there i know but Drink it and flash, drink it where they can see the bottom of your, of your koozie while you drink. I'm just going to drink it. I know. Did y'all see it? No, I don't. No, the, the bottom of the koozie has Jesus' face on it, dude. Uh, all right, well, let's just do it this way then. Hold on. Look. Oh, that's hilarious. Yeah, it's a witnessing koozie. <laughs> like some people are like, oh, how could you be a Christian and enjoy quality craft beverages? And then you're like, because as you enjoy it, you're showing Jesus to the world. <laughs> and it's really immoral to use a quality homebrewed like koozie with Jesus <laughs> on the bottom if you're drinking PBR. It's like ruining your witness. <laughs> I will say, I, it is true. I, I definitely drank more today with you than in my entire life. So um, I guess the biblical proverb is true that he bad had company ounces, good moral. Just to be clear, he had 12 ounces. <laughs> no, I had more than hours. that. I had a... I had at least two of those taster things at each brewery. How many ounces is that per taster? They're three ounces, Tim. 
Well, I had at least Three six then. ounces, That's and half the time ounces. I drank the second half when you weren't looking. Because I didn't, I didn't need you stumbling over yourself by the time we got to a, a podcast. But um, uh, Theology Beer Camp, I started eight or nine years ago. I can't remember. But I started the podcast 15 years ago when we were like the only podcast that liked, wanted to help not kill the planet and like gay people at the same time and was Christian. And since then, lots of podcasts have joined that world. New Evangelicals being one, Bible for Normal People, You Have Permission, so many of the podcasts that will be here in October. And so over time, these events where we get together each year started as just the people that actually listen to podcasts and like homebrewed grew where then more, uh, more podcasts come. And then a bunch of the theologians, biblical scholars that show up on them come and hang. And the goal really is to find three, these three groups of people. One is all the communities that listen to podcasts that if you were like creating Venn diagrams of awesomeness, they overlap. And some of them listen to different ones. And you get these community together. And then because I'm a super nerd, I'm like, but what about all my professional nerd friends? I bring them. And then you find a community to host it like the venues where for so many of the people that listen to those podcasts and haven't been in a church for years, they can feel welcome. It's a safe space and they can encounter uh, the, the love of God in a way where their questions their skepticisms and their doubts can be just as welcome as all of their identity and it can be celebrated. And then they meet ministers and people of those churches and they go like WTF, why is there not a venues on my neighborhood? Uh, and, and so like, that's always the goal of the event. And so since we're here working on plans and all that kind of stuff, we decided to, uh, do the little taster, my Bobby. Yeah. But you, you, my podcast and your podcast come from two very different backgrounds because when we first met, I reached out to you, but two years ago, I was witnessing. I was like, Oh, I was like, this guy tripped four. Someone recommended him. Let me, let me check him out. And you were the first podcast where I went two and a half hours where you talked for 80% and I talked for 20%. I was like, wow, this is really good stuff, but there's just so much here. My wife was yelling at me like, it's dinner time. I was texting her as I was talking to you like, I'm sorry, I can't get this guy to stop talking to me. He's used to there's no place to interrupt his train of thought. It's so good. So I was coming out of like this evangelical world, like fresh out of the box. Yeah, you know, like, like I lost my church over starting the organization, and that was like my tradition. But you, when we talked, you're like, I haven't been in that space in so long at all. Like, it was so much of what I told you was foreign to you. And I'm like, no, this is totally normal for me. Yeah, so, I, I didn't know what a Charlie Kirk was. <laughs> my nightmares have gone up since becoming friends with Tim. Well, you're welcome. Yeah, you're welcome for that. Yeah, thanks. You're welcome. Well, I think it's important, though, because sometimes there are folks who rightfully so, are so far removed from that world. And that's really important. That's really good. But I think that sometimes those folks forget like how influential and powerful that world still is and what they're doing to like really harm so many people. So I think the strength of some of these fresher podcasts, so to speak, that are kind of fresh out are like, no, dude, it's worse than when you left it maybe 15, 20 years ago. Yeah, I feel like uh, ugly Christianity has just been slowly, uh, it's like a rue. You know, starts out kind of runny and junk. And then after 2016, they turn the heat up. And then after the COVID shows up, it was like, whoa, 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 let's, lie to, let's add a lot of white heavy cream. And, uh, and then it starts sticking to the bottom of the pan and burning and your kitchen smells for weeks. 
Yeah, but but the trick is is that you're told that burning is the only way to actually eat. <laughs> you're like, this is the only option you have. You eat this or you just die. Yeah, it may taste horrible, but do you yeah, know what it bad. tastes like? They don't even serve breakfast in hell. Right. Nice. Hashtag news voice. Hey, Hashtag take me to your leader. Yeah, Yo, I'm proud of you, Trip. That was a good one. Yeah. yeah, I was trying to go back to when I had a cultural reference for evangelicals. <laughs> but th- this is honestly, though, this is why I honestly am excited for this beer camp. I mean, last year was amazing. It was my first time, you know, and I was, I think for me and Noah, my podcast producer and other folks who came out from like our community, we were all like, whoa, like there's a whole way of thinking about this stuff that is so far removed from anything that's this evangelical fundamentalist basement. And it's, you know, it's frankly just more intellectual, like how you're approaching this stuff between you and all the people that you had there. And this beer camp is... I think really important for folks, and I'm one of them, who are still thinking like, okay, like, we're out of that basement of fundamentalism. Like, we're in this first hallway of this Christian house. Like, but where do we go from here? Like, what, what are the options? You know, and, and how do we find a better way forward that is still rooted in the Christian tradition? Because, you know, deconstruction, that term, people, they explode. They go in all different directions, yeah. right? We've all had people that we probably know who are like, hey, I got above ground and I ran straight for the front door. Like, I am out of here. I just want nothing mm-hmm. to do with it. I totally get it. And it's completely respectable. And I get why people do that. And certainly the, the divine exists outside of that house. But for a lot of us, and I think I'm one of these people, I'm like, mm, there's something about this Jesus thing, something, something about, about this Christian tradition. I'm already radicalized. Like, like, those pathways have formed. I don't really want to rethink everything. And so I think a lot of folks are like, well, what now? Right? Like, like how do I yeah. talk about the Bible? How do I be Christian in a world that is like more and more just not what I thought it was. Mm-hmm. Um, how do I navigate advocating for neighbor in a healthy way that isn't, you know, Christian nationalist or trying to take away the rights of people who deserve to exist. So I think this beer camp will be good because we're thinking about those questions as we form the sessions or who's doing what, or how's the breakout group go, or even like your opening session, which brings us to this moment in this conversation because you told me that you wanted to test out your opening speech as a taster. Well, you did say that you weren't optimistic about my ability to talk for under 30 minutes and use vocabulary that doesn't require a graduate degree. You don't know this, but every time we talk on the phone that's under 10 minutes, I text Diana Butler Bass a screenshot and say, look, with God, all things are possible. Under she doesn't 25 you, minutes. She? That's why I send the screenshot. So the timestamp is there. But I do think. Well, did you tell her you hung up on me? <laughs> well, no, I didn't okay. tell her that part. I mean, the context doesn't matter in that case. Okay. Um, but I, I am interested to hear you test this out on us because, yes, I am someone who is not academic. My, my level of conversation is lower. And so I hope that you can get through that and it doesn't suck. So I actually understand what you're saying. But if it does, then we can repair it now. Right. And I figure we do it live with people and have accountability in the moment. But then, so uh, when we were talking about this, like this beer camp is unique in the sense that normally, because homebrewed Christianity, there's 1,500 episodes. Like I have a PhD that's a joint PhD in philosophy and religion. My postdoc is science and religion. I've been on faculty at all sorts of places and stuff. Currently, I'm visiting professor of theology at Luther Theological Seminary. Um, last three years I was at university of Edinburgh in science and religion faculty. And, uh, it, and so beer camps normally are super duper nerds 
who just happened to have other degrees, so they day drink and hang out where if they had gone into graduate school. And so at last year, I was like, Tim, did your people have fun? Yeah. What would you change? Could you please, like, not assume that everyone just reads 500 pages a week for kicks and giggles? And I was like, we will try. You'll stand on stage after we do things and tell us what to repeat. And then I started telling our, my friends, right? Like I was talking with John Dominic Crossan and stuff. I'm like, oh, we're going to try this. You talk to him. And he's like, yeah. I like this Tim guy. <laughs> you know, he's friends with American evangelicals. You know, but she's an Irish Catholic. So it's, you know, he's like, I don't know which is worse, American <laughs> or evangelical. But, uh, or we were talking with Adam Clark. It's like, we've done, started to do these things. Yeah. And so many of my super nerd friends trust you and know that there are these people they would like to introduce a larger, more beautiful, critical, faithful type yeah. version of the tradition to. So uh, they were like, so how's that going to work? I was like, Tim's just going to like correct us. <laughs> and they were like, have you tried this? I was like, obviously that's what we're going to do when we go to Springfield. Absolutely. And, and this I is told Im- you that's what we were going to do. Let me just tell you why this is works. important in this moment. Because the work that folks like you and all your nerd friends do it's actually quite important for how people like us think about faith going forward because a lot of us are so used to dogma and just really simple answers that sound like they make sense. So you go like half an inch beneath them, like, wait, this makes no sense. And so even though I, I think the challenge for folks like maybe not so much yourself because you podcast like more in the public, you know, um, domain, but for folks who are just like purely in the academic world, those voices are needed perhaps more than ever before, especially with how much disinformation is out there and how powerful some of those voices are. But the challenge is communicating very comp- complicated ideas in ways that maybe you take for granted. Yeah. Like, like I'm a professional drummer, right? If I just start talking about rudiments and paradiddles and double stroke rolls and you got to, you know, you make sure you do four on the floor and people be like, whoa, 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 I'm not a drummer. Like you have to back way up to like what the hell is a paradiddle? Yeah. Like, oh, well, what right, about right, right, like right. the boom a tat tat boom a tat tat? Just like that. So you have to go down to like that, Michael Scott, explain to me like I'm five. That's where we have to land on this stuff. And then we can build from there. So that's what I want you to do today. I want you to test this opener you're going to do, and I'm going to rate you, and then I'm going to tell you if you were successful or not. Yeah. And I'm going to drink a lot so I can really, <laughs> really process this. I'm going to take notes on my phone. Are you cool with that? You can do whatever you want. Like, right. You're so open. Yeah. Open and relational. It's like open, you- <laughs> relational, and like we've gone to a lot of breweries today. So I say we do that. Okay. And, I'm, a, and, I'm standing up while I talk because. Yeah, that's totally fine. Well, you, yeah. No, we, we didn't talk about this part. Oh, well, just, just one final thing for okay. the people who are with us in this conversation. I do think it's important for the folks who are listening to this to also, if you want, to take some notes and let Trip know if this is accessible to you. If you're someone or they like have me, questions. or you have questions, you're going to talk to me after, yeah. and then we'll talk to them. They, they can ask anything they want. Hell yeah. So, and then there's also, it's being recorded, and it's a podcast, so just like at beer camp, when you get thirsty, you can hydrate. And if you need to go to the bathroom, do that. And, uh, oh, that's Thank you. That is like, someone's going for Servant's Heart Award. So you're going to stand up and monologue? Is that what you're going to do? Yeah, yeah, but just wave at me when I have five minutes. I I was sober when I timed myself. All right. 
I'm sitting at time. Let's get up for Trip, everyone. All right, Trip. All right. Blow us away with your scholarly. All right. So, uh, dog vomit or stained glass? Cluster curse. I laughed so hard when someone told me that. And I'm like, you really are a recovering fundamentalist. It was angry. And what, but the nerdy title would be Constructive Theology for a Post-Religious Age. All right, so this is my family. Uh, right there, my wife, Alicia, and I, we met when we were 20, and we were Baptists, so true love waited until 20. Uh, and we got married. And so then our oldest, Elgin, who's now 15, he was our pre-PhD baby. And then the other two, Haven and Cora, were after the PhD. The dog there is named Dino. She plays an essential part later in this where it do the coat call back. Uh, Cora, the smiley, giggly, rather wild with very little boundaries woman, uh, loves Dino. She also loves Dino's attention and will get it in all sorts of varieties. Uh, now, how many people in here love that's a bad oh, sign. The Holy Ghost was like, they are not pleased. We, we don't like smoked meat. Well, Cora discovered that Dino's a big fan of the grease at the bottom of a brisket. And so when she ran out of making her treats attractive, she used Crayolas. Don't worry. It'll make sense later. All right. So the last three years I lived in Scotland. And one of the things about Europe is that almost all those countries were Christians forever. Like so long ago that 500 years, no matter where you went in, in Europe, and you were like, do you believe in God? They were like, is there another option? Because his name is Jesus. That's the way it worked. Like everyone that was there had the same big sacred canopy is the nerd word. But the metaphor here is stained glass windows. You were born in a cathedral and everyone had the same stories there. And the light of reality goes through to the cathedral into those stories. But in that space, you encountered God, truth, beauty, goodness. You had your, you, every child that was born was baptized. And you were like, our existence is to love this child till it knows it bears the image of God no matter what. And as you buried someone, you celebrated the hope. And everyone shared this big story. And that's great. And these are my really bad pictures of stained glass windows. Because we would go to cathedrals. And I pre-gamed for cathedrals. Not with drugs, with history. This is what happens with a PhD dad. So, for example, right, this monastery, the other half is destroyed. Each of the, of the parts of that window were sponsored by different vocations in the town. So the bakers have a window. The iron workers have a window. You see what I mean? Like the whole town put, told their story in it. And uh, in, in, uh, you can see a couple of the pictures. This is what I mean is I shouldn't have been a photographer because you can't tell. But in them, for example, the stories of Jesus with children. The pictures are faces of children who had died in that congregation interacting with Jesus in it. So you walk into a cathedral and you're like, oh, it's old religious art. But that city for years, hundreds of years, most of the cathedrals take 100 or so years to build and then exist there were built by individuals that were trained generation after generation in the same guild. And then the face of the kids are the kids that died for some of their members. 
And when they look at the world and the story of God, it all is that neighborhood telling a story they all shared and they had a place in the world. Uh, yeah, that's my attempt at getting the picture so you could see the kids' faces. Again, not an artist, but um, that's why I downloaded some of people that are good at it. And, okay, see, see here, funny thing, does any of those look like actual disciples? No, they were Scottish elders. And what did they do? These were the old Scottish guys uh, who adopted widows as their children so that no one, uh, that all the widows were cared for. So like an old dude adopts a woman older than him to care for them. And they were the faces that got put on uh, the, the windows. <laughs> For Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All right. Uh, so it, it, oh, I'm trying to say this because a lot of that experience is similar to mine. I was a Baptist preacher's kid in rural North Carolina. The religious diversity on my street was tobacco farms and free will Baptists, and we witnessed to them. When I was in fourth grade, we had a Methodist move to our school, and I didn't know if they were Christian. So until we moved in the city and church planted, Religious diversity was a variation of Baptists, and everyone, if I made half quotes of a Bible verse, they were sword drill champs too, and they knew it because we all shared the same sacred canopy. We were born in a cathedral of the Baptist narrative. We all shared it, and because we did, we could talk at different points in lives, our vulnerability, our brokenness, and we had a shared religious vibe. And you didn't have to explain it because we didn't know anyone that talked about beauty, goodness, truth, they didn't have the big narrative with us. We might have our problems with it. We might have our questions, but we all spend our life in the same cathedral. And so that image, I think, is so important because a lot of us end up deconstructing. And the temptation is let me fix one window because I don't know if the goodness and reality of the God I've encountered in Christ exists if you walk out the cathedral. And so you spend all your time trying to fix a window right? How many people had that moment, and this might just be a confession, where you realize that if penal substitutionary atonement was true, God's not as nice as Jesus, right? Like Jesus is like, oh, a woman has 10 coins, loses one, search until it's found. Shepherd loses one sheep, leaves nine, search till it's found. A son comes back, throw a party, older son's complaining, and he's like, you could have had a goat if you asked. And, and then all of a sudden, you're like, but have you heard about limited atonement? Before the foundations of the world, fool, only a few. But don't worry, if it was just one, you'd be like, damn, you're holy. It's called love. Enjoy it. And you're like, whoa, whoa, but what about like the until it's found searching thing? Do you not know Christian theology? Have you seen our windows? You should have looked at the other side where there's lots of fire in them. And you're like, well, why can't God at least be as nice as you shut up? <laughs> right? And you're like, maybe I just need to fix the window. Right? And you can start to do this like, let me fix a thing. But here's what I hope we do at beer camp and what I, in thinking about this, uh, the questions that Tim had sent, I was like, let me try to frame it this. What if we aren't just trying to fix a window, we're trying to see what it means to be centered in Christ where there are no boundaries? What does it mean to be deeply Christian? where you aren't worried about fixing your particular answers at a moment, but grounding yourself in the reality you've encountered in Christ to meet neighbors and enemies who may not share the same symbols. And so 
These tell us are symbols of a different time, and some of us have experiences of doing it. But there is a homeless first century dude named Jesus. And if you read scripture, there are wonderful phrases. Firstborn of all creation, second person of the Trinity, and all that kind of stuff. But it makes perfect sense when you're here. This is me trying to draw. I'm sorry. Because Tim has harassed me about my mainline Protestant low-tech vibes passing as reasonable when he has all that mega church vibes. He's like, can you use slides and shit? Well, are we allowed to curse? I didn't even know what the uh, beer camp, I promise it happens. Nonetheless, uh, the, the weird circle uh, over the top is like the canopy, like the, the, the sacred story. Um, and so you got from the beginning, Garden Fall, Israel, Jesus, Church, blah, 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 you know, all that kind of stuff. But what happens when you have a sacred canopy and the light shines through it is there are a lot of questions that are answered that actually just humans ask across cultures. Like the origin, where do I come from? Do I exist in a situation of meaning? Uh, you learn language. When you learn language, you're not just learning words that refer to something. You're actually learning a habit of interpreting reality. And until you get older and, quote, deconstruct, you don't know that language is arbitrary. It's a cultural baggage. Like, you don't know that just, like, you used to say this person was labeled sinner, but then you were like, actually, I think they're hot and we're in the same gender. You know, like, it's a, like, the way language comes, it comes value-laden, but if you only know one picture of reality, you can't differentiate the interpretation from the reality. And so that's the thought bubbles of truth, God, beauty, and goodness. And then as you're born into it, you know, you're baptized and you grow up and all these kinds of things. And now you have a purpose. You're walking towards it. And you know it's connected to an ultimate purpose everyone shares. The eschaton. Oh, I put, I put telos on there just because it's like one you use in graduate school. But, um, but here's why this is complicated. He, we're in a time where there's a growing cultural consciousness that if we're just fixing the windows, we don't answer the real question. For example, cosmological consciousness. These are all kind of five parts of postmodern consciousness. Like I mentioned earlier with the Jesus picture, when Paul's like, this is the firstborn of all creation, that's one thing. But he, he didn't know that we're like on a planet that's really old and we're in a mediocre solar system and a mediocre galaxy and there's billions of them, right? Using the exact same language means something when humans aren't the center of the entire ontological structure of existence, sorry, uh, aren't the center of the way reality is structured. Thank you. I saw that face. Ontological. He was like, well, the lemon meringue beer hasn't kicked in that much trip. So that's social or or cosmological consciousness. But there are others like uh, historical consciousness. Like it's completely different when, and this is true for most of church history, the only people actually read the Bible and interpret it are the people that already like took vows of poverty and chastity, which really inspires you to exegete correctly. 
uh, and, and you stay on track. But then once the Protestants handed out Bibles and everyone's reading it, they're like, no, this is biblical Christianity. And then Luther's like, oh, we're rallying the troops. And then 20 million denominations later, we're like, what the hell is biblical Christianity? There's like a billion interpretations of everything. Why did we give people a Bible? And you're sitting there and you're like looking at all these things playing out through history. And then the enlightenment shows up. You're doing historical criticism. You realize Matthew, Mark, Luke, John have contradictory things. And it's just sitting in there. And then the history behind it is so crazy. And if you forget Jesus is a Jew and was killed by the empire, you end up with stupid interpretations of the Bible that make no sense. And yet you're told that's orthodox. And you're like, bah! and there's no real answer to it. Some people are like, I need to fix that window. Hashtag NT right. <laughs> and then others like, no, 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 I need to fix that window. Hashtag John Dominique Cross, and he'll be at beer camp. <laughs> but what if you're, just fi- if you're just trying to fix the window for how you're understood history, you're not recognizing that everyone you talk to has freaking Google, and now they can ask AI. They can literally be like, why is my youth minister wrong? <laughs> Dear member, what did your youth minister think? You know, so uh, his uh, social consciousness, you know, that where you are born, your race, class, gender, sexuality, what part of the world and when you are born completely changes everything you know about yourself. You are a winning sperm. You beat out millions, and yet everything that's most important about your particularities is accidental. And you're like, what do you do with that? I don't know. Come up with a new version of sovereignty or whatnot. But like you see, like all these things we can't undo. Pluralist consciousness, like, I moved to Los Angeles and I realized there were six, there were six different religious traditions on my street. Uh, they went to different cathedrals with different stories and the nicest person was a libertarian atheist. And I was like, look, being an atheist is one thing. But, uh, and all that is nothing like false consciousness. Uh, in, if, if it's philosophy class, this is where I go like, Here's Marx, here's Freud, here's Nietzsche, here's Darwin, here's cognitive science, religion, here's evolutionary psych. But underneath all of it is that we no longer can be confident. We even know we believe what we believe. What is the reason why? What if I didn't get a PhD in philosophy and religion, then a postdoc in science and religion and start a podcast and all these things because I really think I've encountered the truth and want to communicate. What if the real issue is I have mommy issues? What if secretly deep down I know that if I was like, I don't believe in God anymore, my mom's going to cry. And because I had poor attachment around four to six based on Erickson's stage theory, that I have to spend the rest of my life internalizing guilt about not having secure attachment by fabricating a story that I perform to people like you and on the podcast each week, but I really just need a therapist to work out that trauma. But in lieu of that, I have a lot of graduate student loans. And you can go through all these things, like, you know, Marx, you can think of the way economic motives work, or you can think, anyway. But false consciousness is we're not transparent to ourselves as to why we believe things. Once you admit that, then it's real hard just to fix windows. In fact, it makes the activity of fixing windows and feeling anxious about it a little revelatory. What happens if it's not really about your faith, it's about belief because you needed certainty about something because you wouldn't let the light in unless you were controlling the stories it came in with. So this are some of these pictures I showed earlier. 
And uh, we went around lots of family vacations in Scotland because we were there for lockdown and couldn't go anywhere else. Uh, and this is what they look like on the outside. Um, this is it's raining because it's Scotland. The two months a year people visit, it's dry and sunny, and they're like, I can't believe you got to live there three years. And I'm like, <laughs> But you get these beautiful stories I told before. On the outside, you get this. And I'm like, Cora, I need you to come here and take me a picture. On the outside of the cathedral, I have an idea for my philosophy of religion class. She's like, what? I was like, just come take a picture. And she's like, this is the ugly side. I'm like, I know, just take my picture. And she's like, you can't even see the stories. It just looks like that time Dino ate all those crowns and threw up. And that experience is the feeling so many people have that moment the sacred canopy or the cathedral they were born in breaks down. They know what it's like to have been in it, encountered God, love, divine, the depths in ways that you couldn't tell your story without it, but they also know what it's like to go out and go, oh, on the other side, it kind of looks like that time Dino ate all the Crayolas that were in bis- uh, brisket grease and hurled. And they're both true. That's what the stained glass actually looks like. And so, oh, there she is. Don't you, like you would clean her throw up up. She's such a sweetie. See, look at Dino. Didn't Dino cute, Tim? So cute. Okay. Well, see, this is what happens in a post-religious age, like one where you're, you don't have a religious a priori, where you don't just assume a shared sacred canopy and everyone's in the same cathedral, all that kind of stuff. The little, again, I'm not an artist, but the little wigglies are cracks in the glass. And then the words that are in green are the different parts of postmodern consciousness. But notice what happens uh, when it breaks. No longer do you encounter everyone where you're all part of one origin story. And now, instead of having a shared origin, whether it's the image of God, you can go through each religious tradition. The recognition of the reciprocal relationship of Brotman and Ottman uh, changes. Anyway, there's lots of ways this shows up. But then, all of a sudden, where you find yourself, fun word, it's from Heidegger. This is your way to impress your friends later. Throneness. Heidegger, 20th century existentialist philosopher. He said, the human predicament is one of reckoning with throneness. Where you realize the things you cherish most about your identity And the language and symbols and all these things used to work it out are where you happen to have found yourself thrown in the world. What do you do with that? Well, you end up being a philosophy major with a lot of loans attached to humanities degrees that generate lucrative (laughs) opportunities to adjunct for $3,000 a class. Um, But also, then... All the language that you use to talk about God, beauty, truth, goodness, justice, all of a sudden get relativized because they aren't framed. And yet, what does it mean to be human and not ask those questions? We don't know. What happens when Luther's anxiety, uh, the Protestant anxiety of all of a sudden, here I stand, I can do no other reason than Bible. What happens when all of your language is accidentalized, problematized, thrownness, and the stories are historicized. All the, like, what happens when now you bear the burden 
for giving meaning in your reality if you're honest about where you are. The, the intensity of Protestantism, the moment you get to a post-religious context where we don't share the same sacred canopy, dials up to 11, spinal tap style. And now we each have this feeling of the very questions that every culture's asked, beauty, truth, goodness, who is my neighbor, what is love, what is justice, are now asked with language, symbols, and stories. You have false consciousness about yourself, and you have historical, uh, political, all these suspicions towards the language. You know you're thrown, it's accidental, and then you say to yourself, what is in front of you? Not meaning, not a goal, but death. And you know what humans do in the face of death? Lie with confidence. And I, it's simultaneously funny, and I think it's relieving if we're just honest that this is where we are. And this isn't a value statement. It's not about finality. It's just admitting that what if all the deconstructing that's going on, what if the kind of questions we have are not fixed by fixing a window, but thinking what does theology look like when we're honest about our thrownness, our givenness, all these kinds of things. And so uh, I, those pictures were part, uh, when I was teaching philosophy of religion, I taught it each semester at the University of Edinburgh. And in Edinburgh, it's multi-religious and largely uh, secular, right? And so I felt like I had to make the case for religion when I teach the class. And I'd done like the nerdy version of these kinds of ideas over the semester. And I get one of these, I need to talk to you emails. And I go, and this individual from Iowa says in my office with large amounts of existential angst, are you telling me Christianity is a historical expression of culture supported and structured by evolved cognitive mechanisms and my deep attachment to it's an accident of birth? And, you know, until I put together that she's a recovering or, well, at that point was still a fundamentalist, I went, yes, <laughs> you're going to get an A. I, I'm so glad. Like, yes, that's what is going on. And I'm like trying to be encouraging, you know, because I noticed in like the online chats, there was a lot of growing edges and I was giving kind of like, well, have you thought about this, thought about this? And. I'm like being encouraging because she's not responding. And you know, sometimes when people don't have words, it's because they don't have words. And she, and I slowly connect dots and go, I don't think she's receiving this as deep affirmation of her growth over the semester. And she says, class your curse, and walks out. Later that day, she sent an email to the head of school and said, I can't believe you have an ardent atheist teaching philosophy of religion, trying to corrupt people that value religious traditions. Helen, who is an atheist, uh, it says, you do know he's a Baptist minister. <laughs> anyway, but uh, so I say this because I feel like a lot of people are at this point where if you're only, if you think being a Christian is fixing your windows or fixing the ideas and stuff, you are just, you're like allergic to being honest about where we find ourselves. But what happens if we're just not going to argue about that, but then go, well, what happens if you're a follower of Jesus? If you're not going to spend your time cluster cursing. And, uh, and what you see, I think, is in modernity, 
For so long, we believed that if you just were rational and used facts, we could settle problems. So the theist would sit here, the atheist would sit there, they would argue back and forth, and you're like, well, obviously the apologetics person's going to win out, and then like, you know, the new atheist is yelling at it over there, or, you know, maybe it's Bill Nye the Science Guy and the dude from the Ark Museum. See, look at that. Ken Ham. Ken yeah, Ham I'm glad. I, knew, I knew you'd have that on the tip of your tongue. I got you. I didn't look for you for Heidegger, but Ken Ham, I was like, Tim's got Say this. Say no more, fam. Ken yeah. Ham. But, right, but the moment you think through, right, the five different features of kind of postmodern consciousness, this is a bad idea. And here's my suggestion, is that we're no longer at a time where if you just use reason and just think things through with the facts, you're going to end up in a place. We're now at a time where in each of us, the believer and the skeptic exists because we can be totally transformed and animated to care for our neighbors and our enemies because of the cathedrals we find ourselves in and understand our friends that are like, you do know that looks like Dino's throw up after the Crayolas, right? We know both. And in recognizing that, we start to make different distinctions, distinctions that are important. And Paul Ricoeur, one of my favorite uh, philosophers, uh, said this, we may live in something like a post-religious period of faith. That is to say, the dialogue of the believer and the atheist is not anymore a dialogue with the other, but a dialogue with oneself. Uh, Well, I'll skip. Now, I have like four suggestions rules or something for thinking about constructive theology if we're not just fixing our windows that I hope we explore at beer camp and we'll see if Tim thinks these are helpful. But one is distinguishing between faith and belief. And if faith is about giving yourself to, locating yourself, saying this is how I understand myself and will live out my identity, that's very different than saying true, false. I believe X, Y, and Z. And it's a very different thing to have faith with questions than beliefs with questions. Faith, very comfortable with questions. You know how? How many of you have someone who'll use the word love without crossing your fingers to? Well, this is sad. No one literally raised their hand. Everyone in this room knows no one that used the word love. Well, let's just pretend you'd, you didn't even raise your hand, Tim. Okay, thank you. I was like, Jesus Sorry, I'm trying. loves you. Okay, but when you, you want someone to throw you a hot roll? Yeah, I was just thinking that. Anyone have any hot bread they can toss me by any chance whenever I do this? <laughs> but yeah. here's what happens. Like, if you're actually in a real relationship with another human subject, you know that you don't even understand the mystery of who they are. And in fact, when you, get, when you have a covenant, you get up in front of a whole bunch of people that have been married for a while and they giggle when you do the vows on the inside because they're like, he has no idea what he's signing up to. Right? You could, I've done hundred and some weddings because the church I worked at for a while was one of these you know, wedding spots. We did like three a weekend. And every time you get one of these where they're just like, ah, and you're sitting there going, they don't know. This is the person that's going to hurt them more than anyone else in their life. And that's if they do it well. And underneath that is there's this idea of I love an object. And I'm saying yes to this. But if you love a subject, they remain a mystery. And what's required in genuine love is the trust that you're giving yourself to this person and you're going to discover who you become as they discover who they become with you. And they have to remain a mystery. 
And so it's so much more about faith, not belief, because I didn't marry. The person I married is not the person I'm married to. And she's definitely not married to the same person. So this difference between faith and belief is important. And that means we can trust in how the light breaks through where we've encountered the God revealed in Christ, but that does not mean the finality of the cathedral where we first met the light of God. The second one is a distinction between love and my beloved. This is Alicia. This past summer, um, we, or I guess it was spring break when we went to uh, the aquarium. We'd done like the aquarium thing, which is managing our three kids and one of their friends. And we're like, oh, let's get a selfie. Because they're like playing with ice cream and Cora got in the fountain. And, and we're like taking five or six and she's like, well, that's not your good side. And it's like, oh, no, this, this. We're playing along. And then I, I'm like, I just like rip one, you know? So I'm like doing this. And, I'm, and she just starts laughing. And that is my favorite Alicia smile. And it, all the way back on our second date, I ripped a nasty one, and she giggled, and I was like, I do know where this is going, right? And, <laughs> and I know some of you are sitting there going, Trip, that is completely disgusting. If you were on a second date with me and ripped one and anticipated a giggle, it would be your last date with me, and I would warn my friends. But it was endearing to her. But a lot of you that love someone... When I told that very particular story that provoked my very favorite smile from my very favorite person, you knew what I meant because you know what love sounds like. But you have no problem hearing that story because a lot of you are like looking at your partner going, do not think you can rip it nasty with a selfie and think it's cute. (laughs) Trip, mute that shit. You know, and so I say this because when it goes that none of you are going to ask me for my wife's phone number, even though that's really cute. And I could tell you a million reasons. She's wonderful. And I love her because you can distinguish between my beloved and love. One of the biggest fears for people once you walk outside the cathedral is I can't stay in here because it feels like absolutism. If I want any of the people I meet, they have to come in here to encounter God. And then the other experience is I go on the outside and it's just dog vomit. It's relativism. And they're all stupid. But we already know how to distinguish between love and the beloved. You do it every time you smile and resonate with the love a friend tells you as they are falling in love with their partner, and you don't ask for their phone number. You see what the distinction is? Your beloved and what happens if we we know ourselves as beloved and we use the word Jesus because that's who, that's the very person that showed ultimate reality with a human face to us. What if he's the image of the invisible God? God in sandals. We can say all those things and not think every other person we meet for it to be true needs to come in our cathedral and enjoy our windows because you already do it with your neighbors when they tell you their love story. But you you know the perk of that? I know a lot of people that think they can't really enjoy singing a shitty worship song because they want to love their Muslim neighbor. Or they can't keep doing their quiet times because they're like, this is the text where I read it and I come alive. Or start inserting it. The moment you make the beloved love distinction, then you have permission to deeply encounter the divine in the place where it animates you and helps you love your neighbor and enemy. And 
What happens when you talk to people that that's not their cathedral? You get a bigger spice rack. I spent three years in Scotland, and here's the problem with Scottish food. They only have salt and pepper. It's horrible. I mean, like, if you get fajita spice, it, it tastes like Heinz barbecue sauce. Not, it doesn't taste like, I had to have my friends from California mail me peppers, you know, and it's just depressing. You're like, wah! The only food with any flavor in the entire country is Indian because of the colonial legacy, right, of the UK. And even then, I'm like looking at all the Scottish people, like, can't you like get some spices from your Indian neighbors? Like your food would be so much better. Try that out. But a lot of us think if we're going to cook food, if it's going to be home cooking, we can only use our spice rack. But what happens? The moment you realize that the God who knows you and loves you completely encountered you in your space and taught you how to have a beautiful meal in your tradition is the God of love who knows and loves everyone, which is a basic Christian commitment, by the way, then you might think if you meet someone who's been cooking meals that taste zesty over here and you've never met them, you don't have to tell them, enjoy salt and pepper and potatoes, fool. You might go, curry is amazing. It has flavor. And then when they, when they slice the hot peppers and the cilantro and then put the butter on the naan and then you start dipping it in, you go around, you're like, who wants to just have boring potatoes? And expand your spice cabinet. Your grandma's not going to cry. We're sitting in a time where you are among the first generation that can know people from all these different traditions that have been encountering the living God and cultivating different dishes. You can taste them if you're a foodie, but why can't we as followers of Jesus encounter what the cosmic Christ, if you're using theological language, has been up to with all these other traditions and wisdom traditions and cultures? Why can't we get a bigger spice rack Because the God who found sandals in the executed Hebrew is the same God that named and called all human beings into reality. Get a better spice cabinet and you can actually cook with more of the zest of the divine. And that doesn't mean when you're sick, you don't have your same bland potato soup. Like it's a different way of framing it. And I think that allows us to celebrate the differences uh, and seek mutual transformation. And... uh, But that doesn't mean, because I know what, and this is the last slide, uh, it doesn't mean everything is a creative advance. This is my nomination for the worst single three-pound purchase in my life. And I thought I was redeeming myself by saving it to use here. Because all fusion cooking is not equal. Haggis curry in a can is wretched. And, and I say that because what happens if theology is no longer primarily the ology, the logic, where you get the final singular truth? It's more like poetics. It's more of an art where you figure out what the most beautiful expression in that context and situation is. You're just reorienting what your task is But what it allows you to do is say, this is gross, this is awesome, I love her, and you know what love is. And honestly, I resonate deeply with all the cosmic love that has ever existed when I see that face, and you don't have to for me to say, 
that you are known and loved completely by the one I call the Christ. And that's the invitation for constructive theology in uh, post-religious context. And time. Wow, Trip. How close was I on? Uh, you're only three minutes over. Oh. That's really impressive. Okay. That was really great. But I had problems. No, I'm just kidding. Okay. I had problems. Um, I, I honestly really enjoyed this talk. I think it's a very strong lecture because you say so many things that I think um, are putting things into words. I'll, I'll, people like myself and others maybe in this room have felt but don't really have the words to say. But can you go back to the slide with all the, like, the isms, like the postmodernism, the consciousness stuff? Where's that one? Keep going, keep going. Yeah, no, yeah that one, that one. Okay, so, so here's, here's my question because I, I still have voices in my head, right, that are like, well, that sounds liberal. Well, that sounds like it's that postmodern thing that we're like, there's no such thing as truth. So let's just start here because these words might not be what you're saying, but can you help us to find understand consciousness? Like when you use that word, what exactly are we talking about here? Is this like just being self-aware? Yeah. Here, Unpack that. Like I, it's kind of like these five little elements are a way of describing postmodern consciousness, which mostly just means like it's the water we swim in. We're yeah. post in a sense modernity, right? Where there was the notion that through reason, truth, logic, you could get to a singular account. Right. So we're post that for and there's scientific reasons we're post that. Sure. There's also like the experience of someone with completely different language and symbols that are like, anyway. Yeah, it makes um, sense. But consciousness, I, I, try, I tried to say consciousness because I wanted it to be value neutral. Like you could end up being theologically like your language could end up being really conservative and all sorts of stuff. But you, it's not like you get to pick what, ha what is happening where you live. Right. Right. Here's a good example to get at it. Yeah. All of them, if you are just fixing your window, are a topic for an apologetics text. Totally. Right? So yes. instead of going, oh, we call a homeless first century Jew the image of the invisible God, um, let us line up prophecies that demand a verdict and then give random science answers so it's obvious. And you never go like, but yeah, like you do know. They had like a three-tier universe and thought the world was 6,000 years old. Oh, no, I do too. But, you know, you know they interrupt you and, and yes. they, they're still like, you know, in the younger. Like, yeah. They, but if you just go, you can, I know you have a incentive to keep doing this, but what if you just don't, what if you don't waste your time on that and just go like, this is where we are? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that, I honestly, I mean, what you're saying makes complete sense, right? Because you're right. Like, I mean, if you just survey even just the American landscape, right? This idea that I guess modernity gives us of like, you can through facts and reason and logic arrive at the same conclusion. It, it falls apart. Just look at our political landscape, right? Like that, that's not a thing. It just isn't happening that way. So I agree that is a snapshot of the reality that we currently live in, right? And so I think what is tough, or I, I would say it's less and less difficult, but it's still like a thought that I think about is, you know, we're talking about at least the concept of God or just like this, this thing that we're trying to put like labels and words to. And if there is this divine presence thing, God, that we call, right? Um, are you just saying that, like, hey, these categories of like, we can use facts, reason, logic to understand this divine thing is not sufficient? 
and we have to look at like other categories of understanding because I think the apologetics world, especially in evangelicalism, right? Like their fatal flaw is trying to say, yeah. well, like if we just use enough facts and reasons, here we go. Like, how could you deny, you know, these, these theological truths? And I tell people often, I'm like, listen, if you need to think about it differently, there's a reason why there's no flat earth department in academia. Yeah, because we can objectively like prove that the Earth is not flat, but there are thousands of theology departments all disagreeing with each other yeah. on how we define this thing, right? So I don't think those labels are helpful. But you know, for people who are trying to gain new language, a new set of lenses, so to speak, how would you kind of unpack coming from that view of like, well, facts, reason, logic, data, you know, the Bible is true, six thousand year creation, and you're like, well, actually. We have like the pluralistic consciousness. We have this false consciousness. Yeah. The co- I'm like, okay, love the language, but help me get from there to there. So well, two things. One is um, I think there, I mean, you kind of just have to ask yourself how long you can continue to believe with 8 billion people on a planet yeah. that a very minority of the planet has access to the truth and it actually requires you to believe things that make no sense yes right like totally and i and i'm not i know the feels from people like the cluster curse student yeah yeah like she's doing way better um but (laughs) thank god part of it like i understand that feeling because you like if you think your conclusions are the only means to justify your encounter with the divine. Right. You're going to stab them like they're ta- any, any threat, like it's, they're going for your grandma. That's right. But I, the other element is in modernity, the apologetics types, I think they were mostly jealous and or threatened by the kind of truth science gets at. Yes. Now, I have like I I teach science and religion. I love it. So don't this isn't even a criticism. It's just a science is a kind of empirical enactment on the world where you're distanced from it. You need to make hypotheses that are repeatable in other contexts. And all the scientific procedure does is a kind of bifurcating or a only only parts of reality can get can be gotten at through that type of endeavor. But it was so effective at understanding the world and gave us so much power for determining the world. Mm-hmm. Then religious traditions said, how do we protect our windows? Right. Let's use the same tool. Right. That's and right. here's the thing I, in that shift towards from, if you're a skeptic believer at the same time, right? Like believer and skeptic, that, and, and you're having faith, they're both parts of it. That's a different mode. Yeah. Uh, than being like a true believer or like an ardent skeptic. And, and part of it is, what if faith, and this is true across religious traditions, no, if you ask Lao Tzu, Jesus, Buddha, and Socrates, tell me your secret, they would be like, well, you have to practice what I'm inviting you into. Mm-hmm. Right? The form of religious, the, the, the epistemology, how you know what you know when it comes to religious traditions is engaged. It's not distancing. Right. It's not something that can be repeatable by everyone. It means you actually have to, if you're a Christian, take up your cross and follow me or right. what you think of all that invitation. Right. Now, I, and, and so the kinds of experiments you would do to demonstrate 
the, the power of the Christian tradition should be different than something that happens by going, we carbon dated a live mollusk. Right. So therefore, come to my ARC museum. <laughs> right. Did you right. know, fun fact, uh, one of my, let's see, how can I tell this? I forgot this is on the internet. So a friend of mine who's a very, a, like a, <laughs> yeah, a famous right gay porn star um, that I met in LA was friends with the other gay porn star who was the model for Adam at the ARC museum. And they didn't realize it was a gay porn star until someone left an anonymous tip in the box and they had to recast it. Oh my goodness. And doesn't that make you want to know the story of the dad who's going through there? Yeah. And is like, let me put, but like I say this cause there's like this conundrum, like you can't accept the rest of the world, but then what right. happens for most of us? Like you, like you can't really believe the whole thing. Right. Right. And so you're like literally the guy bringing your family to the art museum, but you also know the gay porn star that was the model. Right. Um, or you have cancer and stuff, but you actually talk to your doctor first. Like, you're a performative contradiction. I try to tell my fundamentalist in-laws, I was like, you can't hate evolution and take Advil. If you'd like the scientific explanation, just right. ask. Right. And I realize it has nothing to do with truth and, and like, reality. And, and I just want to say, like, who the hell wants to believe in a God if you're scared of truth about reality? Like, why would you call that ultimate reality if you're just like, this is how the world works. It's now like God's unrelated to it. So, like, that part's there. Yeah. Where it's like, ah. But... Here, here's been my suggestion. Now, I, I was a minister in Los Angeles at a very progressive Protestant denomination, so most of the people that came in there were not, they didn't come in Christian, right? Which is a lot of fun because you don't even have to explain to them the stupid stuff Christians believe that you're like, you don't have to actually hate these people or X, Y, Z. And so I taught confirmation for years. Um, and what we would do is, ex- we call, I called them experiments in truth because that's what, Gandhi did the example when you practice the teachings of Jesus. Uh, and, and so, like, take uh, w- when you're with a group for a year, and by the end they'll decide if they're going to confirm their identity in their baptism. And they're 16- to 18-year-olds. Uh, and I'm like, each month we'll pick a different teaching of Jesus, come up with an experiment, and try it. So it is like thinking in that experimental way, but what are the experiments? It's not like, dissect a bunny right right it's do the teachings of jesus and almost every retreat you give them the sermon on the mount at the kicking off of the year uh you know what a teenager picks do not judge right 16 to 18 year olds and you know what they're thinking their parents and all the authority structures judge them and assess them and they're like let's practice this job (laughs) and so uh what we do is we, you know, we're all on a text chain, like the 20 or so people that are doing it that year. And the experiment is this month, every time we text anyone name, a name, you agree to do this quick prayer. And if we know them, you can use initials or come up with a synonym or, you know, anonymous name and the Holy Ghost can translate. But like, so let's say I'm in the group and I, I'm like, I don't like that question Tim just asked me. I'm kind of pissed. I don't even know if I have a good answer. Tim. And then uh, Bryn is in my group, and she gets it, and she just says, Tim. She's like, oh. God, you made and know and loved Tim completely. Give Trip the eyes to see him as you see him and the courage to love him as you love him. And the whole point was we're a community that's experimenting with the truth that judgment reveals something problematic about you. Yeah. And she start to do this. Third week, and this has happened four or five times, eventually some teenager texts their own name. So this time, Bryn gets a text, and it's Trip, And she goes, huh? Weird. 
God, you made and know and love Trip completely. Give Trip the eyes to see Trip as you see him and the courage to love him as yeah. you intend him to be loved. When you get back to group that time, you don't just have the conversations of going, do not judge is nuts. These people deserve it. And I think you and I both have a, lot, a list of people that deserve judgment. I have a long But list. where does that come underneath? There's a whole different revelation when right. you realize all that desire to judge is also connected to the fact that we don't actually trust what God has said about us in Christ when we look in the mirror. Yeah. So who am I really judging is trip. And what I was the real prayer about not judging is actually learning to believe when the God of all creation says, you, I know your name, I know your face, and I care. Mm-hmm. The parts of you you love and the parts you don't are my beloved. Yeah. You yeah. see, and, yeah. and that is an engaged type of knowing. And I think that is more effective at getting at what is at the heart of Christianity. Right. And if someone does that, would you think they're closer to truth than someone that passed the right true-false test based on which of the 20 million denominations gave it? Yeah, well, I mean, that, that is, I think for a lot of us, we had this moment at some point in our faith journey, you know, in my history is Calvinism and very much fundamentalism. And, but at some point, you kind of go, there are 8 billion people on the planet, yeah, and they don't all believe like me, so either I'm just the luckiest person on the face of the planet and hit like the... The jackpot of God is convenient, um, right? It's super convenient, right? That I was elected and, and you were not, Trip, because you drink more than me or something like that. Um, but you do have that moment, right? And so what's interesting about this, this is what is kind of like the mind fuck in my mind, is that you're in a system that is telling you they are giving you truth and therefore the right way to understand reality while also denying reality yeah. And, the, and the way things currently are and what we know about the world and universe around us, mm-hmm. right? So you're kind of like gaslit and just, unint- I mean, I'm not saying it's even intentional by, by people, but like you're just taught to not trust um, what you think you're seeing. In, the, in this case, it is this belief of, well, yeah, how can everyone like not be pre- predestined besides like me and my tribe? Yeah. Well, that's just how God works, the end, as opposed to, well, no, this doesn't make any sense. It, it flies in the face of reality. So I think that's helpful because it's hard for me to, you know, I have what, like 30 something years of that pathway just ingrained Mm -hmm. that, you know, I have to find truth. I have to stand on truth. I have to stand on the Christian truth. And all those, all that word truth to me usually means is like objective reality, which is interesting because I interviewed Sean McDowell a couple of weeks ago, your favorite evangelical apologist. And I had him on the podcast. I, I asked him a question. He, he honestly. A very he, competitive list, by the way. <laughs> he really surprised me because I was like, Sean, do you believe that the resurrection is an objective, verifiable fact in history? And I was expecting him to say yes. And he goes, no. I was like, wait a second. No. And he goes, I think we have good evidence to believe it happened. And I'm like, well, to me, that's for, for my vantage point. I'm like, yeah. that's totally reasonable. Like, I would never think that Sean would, would say, maybe an answer that I would say, like, hey, listen, I get it's a crazy belief, but, like, I think that there is something that happened in reality, and I hold true to it. And Sean's pretty much like, and he's an evangelical gatekeeper apologist who yeah. makes money going into colleges pretending to be an atheist to help Christian kids better defend their faith. And if he's telling me that, that he doesn't believe it objectively happened, like, what have I been taught my entire life? That like if I don't have objective faith that or absolute certainty about these things, 
I was just never a good Christian, mm-hmm. right? And so I think when people like yourself come along who obviously have thought about this stuff and have read way more widely than I ever could, it's like, oh, like, thank God I can think about these things in such a healthier framework that, are, that is more honest about my reality than having to put these blinders on saying, well, uh, I guess God will work it out. I guess like you know, people who are going to burn in hell forever are just predestined that way because God is just and holy, even though that makes God sound like a monster. But I can't really say that because that would go against my faith tradition because God is just and good and loving because I yeah. sang this Elevation song on Sunday morning. Does that make sense? Yeah. I, okay, so I listened to that episode. Oh, you did? Yeah. And, Thank you. Well, I listen to my friend's podcast. At- I don't listen to yours. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's not true. I listen to yours sometimes. It depends on how, if I see two hours, it ain't going to happen. I'm just telling you right now. For you anyone's podcast. You know what's podcast, funny is those are actually happening. the most popular episodes. For you? The two-hour ones? Yeah. Yeah, different audiences, my friend. I know, because mine are smart. Um, <laughs> bingo. Oh, I got a post-it of five words I have to fit in while we're talking, and one of them was bingo. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, so watch out, or I'll give you the white glue <laughs> treatment. What is the white glue treatment? I don't know. I don't know either. Who invented this game? This was not planned. What? Love each other. Is that what the white glue treatment is? Okay. All right. Oh, white glove treatment. I just feel like it, I feel like it just shifted. All right. So no, no. So when I listen to the episode, um, uh, so I had like two random thoughts, and you may be like, "Trip, why the hell does that what went through your mind?" All right, go ahead. One is like. Obviously, you should not say it's objectively required by logic because, uh, like, if something's demanded by logic, then is there even really faith? There's no risk involved. Right. Right? And this was one of Kierkegaard, 19th century Christian existentialist philosopher's point, was there, there was this guy named Lessing who, at this time, everyone in Denmark's basically Christian. So there's, like, this one, like, oh, you know, like, You've got that new atheist vibe. I'm going to tell them how this yeah, is right. the case. And Lessing's like, no, 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 no. We're going to, we're, they're having this nice battle, right? Like, oh, theist and the atheist going back and forth. And I'm going to show you the evidence that demands a verdict and blah, blah, blah. And you have to like go along with it. And Kierkegaard's point was, no, no, there's this giant ditch. Like there's, it, it, he calls it Lessing's ditch. It, that Everything you could ever prove and know about history. And then the infinite was incarnate. Like you just can't get there that way. And if you mm. think you can, then whatever you mean by the infinite was incarnate is not cool. Right. Like it's a little, it's like underwhelming. Yeah. Right. And, and, uh, and so I feel like I wanted to be like, Sean, thanks. Thanks for admitting that faith actually requires risk. Right. And it's not something that's ultimately demanded from the proper application of reason, but it's something that's seized out of you by being tangled up in the infinite love of the divine. Mm-hmm. Right. And so there's, there's, there's that part. I kind of wish my snarky comment back would have been like, uh, well, that's fascinating. Given that your father and you have spent a career acting like that was the case, who was your atheist interlocutor that won? Mm. Because right. when he was on my podcast, he said the opposite. You had Sean on your podcast? Early days. I used when evangelicals said yes to my in, e- invites. Oh, they didn't know who they were Before talking they, to. Yeah. <laughs> I like, got to dig look, that one up. Look, you you were you know, you were probably still reading King James only when I started the podcast <laughs> in 2008. And uh and 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 I was like I also, were you a bit distracted while talking to him because he had that zesty daddy hair? 
That was one of my words, Daddy. Uh, uh, with the with the spikes and it's all like nice. No, you know what it was for He's me? Got that SoCal evangelical. You know what vibe? it was for me? It was his background and his camera quality. I'm like, damn, Sean is on that game. It just looks so good. So that's what I was distracted by. Oh, yeah. I'm glad you were distracted by that. I was. Should have gave him a popsicle. It's one of my words. Jeez. Uh, <laughs> look, I know the playing with the game is a bit ubiquitous, isn't it? Is that another one of your words? Bingo. <laughs> you can call me the Pod Daddy if you want. All five done right wow, there. Good Game for you, Trip. I'm so proud of you. All right. All right so, so wait, hold on, really quick. To finish this thought, Sean said the opposite to yeah, you. Yeah, he was just like, me. it's obviously true. So it's ridiculous if a Christian has a doubt about it. Like they can have a doubt about it, but it's just because they haven't thought it through and understood. And I was just like, I don't understand what world you live in. Right. I was like, honestly, I think I actually would be relieved if it was immediately obvious. You know, like, I, just, I, the way I think I put it, and now we had an email exchange after it about it, because I think he came on thinking I was one of his team. Yeah, right, right. And discovered halfway through that I meant different Plot things twist. by the questions. Plot twist. And, but yeah. he said, I, or here's my experience after it, because I don't want to, it's years ago. But I just remember thinking, how, how, how do you go to bed at night? When you spend your days talking to people and you think if they just learn to orchestrate reason, they would agree with your experience of the divine. Right. And if you failed, it's probably because you didn't communicate rationality well. Yeah. Like if they just knew the evidence, the verdicts demanded, these kinds of things. I'm like, who tells that story as their like conversion story? It's literally only like type A lawyers that then retell it that way as a book deal, you know? Totally. Like, uh, the rest, like I, I've, I, I've baptized probably 200 and some adults in my life, most of them in an ocean. And I don't know any of them when I said, what do you say of Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ is Lord. And they paused and said, and that's because Isaiah 53, 5. You know, like that's just not the explanation. Most of it is because the community of the body of Christ actually became the presence of the divine for them. And so they understand themselves rising to new life to be that body for the world. And it's, I just, it, like that whole mode is just so animated by a kind of anxiety that I just don't know if they, like, I just go, I don't know what that would even feel like to be worried about that. Well, here's the thing. And by the way, we have a few minutes left, so we should take some questions if folks have them in a little bit. But I want to maybe, um, give you like a perspective on this because what makes the evangelical American evangelical cultural machine very powerful is that it has combined both the experience and then this like pseudo foundation of you can stand on truth and reason and like it's a firm foundation right so you have like this one side of the evangelical consciousness see yeah learning words now that is like hey um your conversion really does matter. You can experience Jesus, right? Like you can know God. You can have this personal relationship with him. And here's some ways you can do it. And depending on the tradition that you're in, it might be, you know, rigorous study of the word, which is like the more like, I think like the reformed types. And then you have people who are like, oh, well, that's great. But also we can experience the Holy Spirit now like in these sugar rush worship experiences that we've crafted that we won't tell you it's just the Tom build or like the way that, that the chord structure is planned, but it really is, but it's really just Jesus. You can experience God. And then they go, well, on top of that, not only can you experience this, which honestly, I do think if I'm looking back as 
neutrally as possible, there have been many moments in my life that like I was deeply shaped mm-hmm. by in those spaces that still impact me today, right? It wasn't, it wasn't just the music sometimes for me, even looking back, I'm like, nah, something in that moment did change me forever, right? So you have that, and then you have this like apologetics industry underneath of it that gives people um, enough to give them answers, term used loosely, to maybe some of the questions that our culture is working through by reinforcing specific biblical texts. Because again, the Bible is the firm foundation. The Bible is objective reality. The Bible is God's word to us. So if we can get back to the Bible and pick out the, the verses that we need to prove that yeah. like, this is why we stand here, that's enough of the foundation that experience sits on. So I think that's what makes that world incredibly like um, compelling for many people who don't sit around reading, you know, philosophy and who aren't maybe thinking about this stuff 24 seven, but just need to, like, to kind of fill that yeah. part of their life. Right. So I think what I am always thinking about now is, um, like for, let's just talk, let's talk reality, right? Here we are in this room with like maybe 25, 30 people. And you just gave a talk that is like really good and really powerful and really thought provoking. And for every one of you speaking to 30 people, there are pastors who are like them speaking to 10,000 people that are convincing people that like this not just is a way to encounter the divine, but the only legitimate way to encounter the divine that comes with its own set of baggage, right? Like, okay, and also you have to vote Republican. We all know that. Also, queer people are not welcome because they're queer and like we have six verses out of context. Yada, yada, yada. And also like you have to tithe this much and also you have to respect your leaders. And, and know, not wear yoga pants. Yeah, and also you can't drink unless we are maybe a little more Pentecostal or we're, we're now the new reform types that are kind of oh, yeah, edgy, yeah, yeah. right? The so, angrier like, you're the God, the more you're allowed to drink. I agree with that. That's what the product. That's so I'm what just trying Mark to paint Driscoll the picture of me. like, while this is amazing, what I'm thinking about a lot now is like, we how do we actually compel people to better ways forward that want those ways? Because I was in that machine for a long time. I'm not sure about a lot of you, but like, you know, how I use the word just. Oh, it's just yeah. the Tom's doing this and this. Yeah, yeah. See, I think that's one of the words where you signal that I'm now think about this. Like I went outside the cathedral. It's just this. Yeah. And I want to say it's both like you went back and forth as to whether or not it was going to just be, we should just not use the word just get it. Just not use the word anyway. But uh, because if you, if you believe in ultimate reality, anything and it's, it's anything to do with us, all those mechanisms that were evolved over millions of years that are part of the human experience that generate religious experience and all these kinds of things like like think of how much time god was hanging out with like proto homo sapiens ever got to the point of recognizing the value of life outside the context of fulfilling immediate needs like that new netflix documentary um on the uh they love is blind no, um, I, we I probably get different things in our feed. But uh, <laughs> 500,000 years ago, one of our ancestors, you, we found a place, a burial site, where you actually buried people. They are buried with tools. And this means a non-homo sapien. You don't bury the dead unless you actually have a, you don't do rituals unless right. you have a post-mortem relationship with them. And you don't mourn. And it was a cost endeavor to do it. And then they're buried with tools, which means non-humanoids use tools and saw them as valuable, but gave to the dead, which means they think they have at, like life after. Like it goes like a giant changer for like the evolution of religion. The discovery is a real cool new Netflix documentary on it. Sounds but cool. I, I, mean, I say that just because that 
to get to the point that God would be relating to a creature that knows its own subjectivity similar to the subjectivity of its peers and it's valuable enough that you do near-death-defying things to bury it in a particular place, to give it a tool that you interact with, and in that place is the earliest art, like hundreds of thousands of years before humans had art. Yeah. uh, Homo sapiens. And it's all sitting there like, think, there was 13.79998 billion years before any creature had symbolic responsiveness to the divine. Those mechanisms evolved. They're essential to part of who we are. There's a list of them if I went in my cognitive science of religion thing. But I say that just because when you say it's just the Toms, right. I just want to go, no, God spent billions of years working with us to be in a community where we deeply resonate with each other in a story that claims us and inspires us to love ourselves, our neighbors, and our enemies. Don't call it just because God was involved in everything that makes you up and the humans up, and it's something worth celebrating. The question is, do we have to take the gift of being a spiritual and material being and then put it in the context of an asshole God framework. Like we can change the framework and things, but we don't need to, here's the example, and then liberal Protestants do this. So this is why I'm telling you, they, you one of the reasons liberal Protestants churches have such a hard time is because they're so pissed about this. Oh, it's just X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. Instead of trying to create cathedrals with the most beautiful imagery to tell the story of Jesus, to know yourself as loved and even your enemy, They replace a stained glass with clear windows and thinking we've somehow evolved ourselves by getting rid of the big stories that animate us. Right. And I just want to say, humans do not know who they are without a story. Ask a therapist. Uh, Countries don't know who they are without a story. Uh, Yeah, I I know that was... We'll just stop right there. But, like, (laughs) if you just recognize... That to know yourself in relationship to others is to be in the process of telling a story laden with values. Yeah. And that to be human is to have mechanisms that generate attachment and then call forth sacrifice. They're not just the music moving or it's just the, oh, we all treat the, te- the, the Eucharist as holy. All these things are, are spiritual technologies that the divine spent billions of years slowly bringing creation to have those abilities. Mm -hmm. And if we get so phobic of them being used in an ugly situation, then how do we pass off to the next generation and the generation after that the encounter that we experienced in a cathedral where some of the windows were a bit homophobic, nationalist, and X, Y, and Z. Right. And so, like, that's why I think think that shift from theologic in yeah. the mono to yeah. theopoetics is so important yeah. because it's, it's going, the doing theology where, uh, well, is, is, is about capturing something beautiful enough it deserves the name God. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And that means you should use all these gifts. Part of like what's happening is that the like Protestants in the last 30 years have discovered that there's this beautiful liturgical calendar that weaves you through all these different experiences. <laughs> They've learned that there is like a contemplative tradition in, uh, in Christianity right. that we've silenced. Like a rhythm. There's like a like, rhythm. Oh, there's yeah. all this kind of stuff. And occasionally they might listen to a pope that says that part of the biggest problem we have is our deep attachment of self-value with capitalist value and that we might not kill the planet and the poor. Uh, right. And it, like, like there's this rich tradition, right, to the questions we're facing around justice, totally. the environment. All these kinds of things are sitting there. 
We have these practices that are sitting there. And as the more siloed we get, the more narrow we get, where it's just about beliefs, right. we miss the fact that we are made to be in relationship and, there, and, and right in front of you and in front of each of us is a community that has the potential yeah. together to encounter the sacred. Yeah. And I, I get sad when I look at liberal Protestants who think we help ourselves out by putting windows in. Because somehow we understand reality better if it's not narrated. Yeah, right. Or like in that conversation you had with Dom on the podcast, metaphors make reality. Uh, it's yeah, it it's really not because good. metaphors aren't powerful. It's because they're the most powerful one. Right. Yeah. Right. Like money is a metaphor. It has no reference. Looking for a new career? Welcome to Do HVAC Training Service Center in North Charleston. Enroll today in our comprehensive HVAC training hands-on field experience-based program covering troubleshooting, maintenance, installation, and more on various HVAC systems and ductwork. We offer EPA and NAIC preparation and testing along with various certifications. Enjoy payment options. Achieve certification in under five months. Enroll now for your new journey of skill development and career advancement. Log on to DEW hvactrainingsc.com to inquire yeah that, that's really helpful honestly and we'll take some questions after this last response to what you right. said so we have some time for folks who might want to chime in but i think that what you're saying is obviously really good it's oh, like it's that. just it's even just you perfect. don't even listen to my podcast um well i listen to you talk in person i could just call you and let you go. Put you on Next speaker. time, I'm only going to respond with a link to an episode. Like, <laughs> I got 1,500 episodes. Here's That'll be the shortest phone this. call ever. Um, so I think that this has actually been my... Con- well, I want to phrase this correctly because I understand why folks are really angry and why they're leaving their faith expression. I'm one of them. So let's just start with that like framework of you know, most of our, not most, but a good chunk of our content is responding to the John yeah. MacArthur's and the Christian Nationals saying, this is bullshit. This is crazy. So... So I am all about that. I've also realized, I'll just speak from personal experience, that my anger can go kind of one or two ways, right? It can kind of dissolve into just like bitterness where it almost becomes just kind of like a sense of meaninglessness and like there's just, this is all bullshit and the whole thing is garbage. And I've met people, like I've met some atheists on the internet who are like that, like, oh, Religion, it's going away. Like, religion is, is not going to survive. I'm like, dude, you were critiquing, like, 2,000-plus years of, like, tradition. It's not going to happen in five years if you think it is. Like, it's, just, it's not a good take, in my opinion. Yeah, and, I, and atheists don't even have enough kids for that to be true. Just so, <laughs> just so you understand, like, the demographics, 20 years from now, there'll be more people born into religious homes in the world than there are now. Like, that's... Well, but boom, checkmate atheist. But my point is that... But I didn't mean that as, like, a... <laughs> No, but okay. hold on. My, my, I was really triggered by the checkmate atheist thing. I'm like, no, no, I'm just kidding. No, um, I my, know. What you my, mean. my point is that I think a lot of us are maybe teetering, where it's like, how do we navigate a better way forward when all when when as we're reflecting on our experience, there was so much bullshit in it. Yeah, and I, I don't even just mean like the theology. I mean maybe the church trauma, the bad leadership, the like weaponization of God to exclude our friends and neighbors who weren't like us, right? And so I appreciate what you said because I think at least in my journey, I am thinking about like, well, I don't think it's like this dichotomy of either you just go like down this like scientific, factual, reason-based logic route or you just have this sense of blind whatever. But I do think there is this idea of mystery and beauty and goodness and that stories do narrate our lives. Yeah. And like believing in our resurrected Jesus to me is just a very beautiful concept that helps me live a more fulfilling life of love of neighbor and love of God. And so I appreciate that because I don't think it's always healthy for us to look back 
unrealistically negative either, right? Like I was very sincere in those moments. I, as a drummer in a cage like that for 20 something years, there were many moments where like that, it wasn't just the toms. Like it felt very powerful to me, you know? But I do wrestle through, I think sometimes still like how I make sense of that experience and what actually was happening versus like that veneer of the spirit is here. The atmosphere is changing. God is doing something magical. He's breaking you free of your chains only to go back the next day in the same patterns that you thought you were free from 12 hours ago. Does Mm -hmm. that make sense? So that's kind of what I was getting I definitely think it makes sense. And I feel like that, that uh, angst around what you do with everything that comes with a religious institution is not, really different than our angst around political institutions yeah. or economic institutions. It's so many, uh, we're at a place and I think it's ultimately connected to like the shifting postmodern consciousness. Yeah. They're like, what do we do if we all know everyone's crossing their fingers when they're telling the stories that are required to bind us together for collaborative action? Exactly. Right. And, and, and so we need to get to a place that where those that lead in institutions and those that animate and act out of them are not the ones that are true believers in scare quotes in the sense that uh, they're totalitarian about it, but they're true believers in the sense that this tradition contains a wisdom that the world's better off with people committing themselves to. Uh, And one of the problems, I think, for our generation and those younger is a temptation to be like, peace, I'm out. Right. Right. And then what does that leave? Right. Like you joked earlier about my exit, my, my family, when I was growing up, were church planners. We got excommunicated uh, when we won a baptism award for the Southern Baptists and they came and then they were like gay people leading worship. And they were like, well, I don't know if you get this one. And I'm like, <laughs> uh, and so we, right. we exited rather early. Right. Uh, and because, but every generation where the cray cray, then gets rid of like Russell Moore's no longer legit as a Southern Baptist. And he was part of like organizing to fire so many of my friends. So totally. it's like, totally. It, it's like, it's like they're boiling out and it's just getting uglier as yeah. it goes down. Yeah. And every generation that's stuck in that, right. It's like now the toxicity is even higher when you exit. So your exit velocity is even crazier. Exactly. Right. And, and that's why honestly, like the thing I love most about beer camp isn't just, I mean, the, my favorite thing is hanging out with my favorite podcasters and theologians. Yeah. But the other part is when all these people that got thrown out and exit velocity in all these places show up and realize they have no need to lie and can say what they need to say and can yeah. be themselves and right. then go, well, at least they don't cross their fingers on the God is love part and we're figuring out the rest. Right. Because the, like we aren't becoming more and more siloed or more and more smaller collectives less and less animated by shared stories of beauty isn't going to give us the collective power to respond to the forces of death that are expressed in religious political and economic uh, places and you know funny thing is despite people's attachment to jesus he literally wasn't the messiah without disciples he does nothing until he calls disciples and then what does he do throughout the whole thing is he empowers his disciples he sends the 12 he sends the 80 or the 70 and Luke and, and John, it's like, oh, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. Right. Like the whole Jesus movement and all four gospels is what God is doing here makes no sense without a collective embodying it. Right. And then so often we get burned or we get toxic stuff. And then all of a sudden we think the solution is let me fly solo. Exactly. And that's the sad part. I yeah. understand why we do it. Yeah. But we weren't made to fly solo. Totally. 
And um, I mean, that's one of the reasons I'm excited about excited about beer camp, excited like there are churches like the venues that will host those kinds of things. And then people fly in from all over, then locals show up and, and yeah. you're like, okay, maybe we're not alone. Right. But if we figure out how to connect and tell more beautiful stories, right. then when our kids are our age, maybe they don't roll their eyes for 30 minutes before they smile when they talk about Jesus. Right. And maybe their grandkids are born in a place where no matter who they are, how they understand themselves and the challenges they face, they know that the God who's revealed in Christ has a community that's chosen yeah. solidarity with the underside. Right. That's possible, but it's only possible if we choose to invest in community in the present. Yeah. And so, like, I choose to invest and then make space for people that aren't sure they can. Right. But my, like, real goal is that Elgin, Cora, and Haven, who you saw, kids and grandkids, when they hear the word gospel, it rings like it's actually good news more right. than it does to so many now. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's really good. I totally agree with you. And um, your camp will be a good time. But and you're allowed to be cynical. Don't hear it like not. I, I don't want to tell people they can't be cynical. Well, we can hold. I mean, part of the work that we do is we hold space for folks who are cynical. Yeah, I you, get, know, you have to. I'm sure you, you get them in your DMs all the time and in our Facebook community. You get DMs from lots of broken people and Mark Driscoll. And it's well, and I think. <laughs> well, that's not public, Triff, but it, I, I know but it was now. on a live stream. So I just wanted to say that so that <laughs> someone after Jesus. would ask about it. Um. No, it's that's very I'll blame important. it on the fact that Bryn took us to a lot of breweries. Holding earlier. the space for this for folks who are who are breathing some fresh air for the first time and who are mad at what the fuck they went through is really important, and that helps people I think find be seen and know like okay, if I don't want to, I don't have to throw the whole thing out. Like actually, I'm above ground now. I thought it was a desolate a, yeah. a, a desolate wasteland up here. Turns out it's more beautiful than I ever imagined, but. What do I do now? You know, and I think the work of folks like you and you know, our organization and others is helping people navigate like a very overwhelming sense of like, wait a second, are you telling me that for decades I was told that this damp, moldy, stinky basement was like all there was? I just had to accept it and breathe it in, the good and the bad. And if I left, there was nothing but, you know, yeah. a desert up there. You're telling me that was not true. And I'm in a massive house with like, hundreds of rooms built by people over time, space, culture, history, with very different ways of looking at this. And I have permission to explore these rooms and still be faithful to Jesus? Like, where the hell do I start? And I think yeah. that's why things like beer camp and other things are so important. Okay, hold on, hold that thought. I do wanna stop here, because I've teased this. Are there any questions for anyone here in this room with us that maybe you want to ask someone like Trip or myself before Trip goes on another monologue and we run out of time? So. Um, if you do have a question, you can just say it and then repeat the question back into the mic for folks who are going to listen to this later on and we'll be able to hear it. So it's a good idea. Repeating the question back. In the mic. Thank this you. This is me vamping in case. Yeah. I don't even see. Well, there's no pressure, but if there are, at least, yeah, go ahead. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
Oh my god. Well, let's avoid the last part of the question. Yeah. What uh, was your name? All right, so Nathan asked about Phyllis Tickle uh, and her, her she wrote a book called The Great Emergence, did a lot of talking about it. Phyllis Tickle is the Southern feminist Christian saint. Um she started uh uh Publisher Weekly's religion section in the 80s and was the one that kind of recognized that popular religious writing is the way of understanding the changing spiritual religious context in American culture and in the West. Uh, she also was an intimate part of the emerging church movement. Um, my, my buddy Tony Jones and I, he'll be at beer camp, are working right now on an oral history of the emerging church in public that we're doing this. So it's not like y'all should have known that. And Tim wouldn't know because he didn't listen to my podcast. But uh, are you going to get to the question and repeat it back to him? Or no, I was saying his question was about uh, Phyllis and then like how you see it. And yeah. so like in it, she talks about these 500 year cycles. So where you get um, Jesus is part of the emergence of the apocalyptic within Judaism's the end of Second Temple period, Judaism, destruction of the temple in 70. 500 years later is where you get like. Uh, Augustine sacking of Rome, all these kinds of things. 500 years later is where you get the split of the East and West, mm -hmm. the arrival of Islam. 500 years after that is the Reformation. And this is just the story in the West. Right. Uh, and you can go backwards, right, to the Axial Age and all these other kinds of things following it. And one of the things she observes is that there are these habits and periods of time where uh, she uses image rummage sale, right? Like where you just start pulling the shit out of your attic and all these things and you're selling it on the thing. And then all of a sudden, some other people are like, oh, junk, let's translate the Bible into German and hand it out. And then that causes a ruckus or, you know, this kind of thing. Sure. Uh, and so one of the things in the great emergence that came out, I think like around 2013, 2014, around there was to say, oh, we're at that time. So what? Uh, what has happened other times where all of religion goes through this explosion? So if we just think back to Luther, um, you have technology changing, like printing press and things online. You have uh, political tensions in the Holy Roman Empire they're generating. So like German nobility are now going to protect people and you get splits up. That's the emergence of the nation state. It's a, the proto-capitalism at that point economically. Um, and all these things are going on. There's tumult. We have to reorganize how religion works. We reorganize how our economy works. We reorganize how politics works. And in all of that, out of it, you get Protestantism. And it's here. But it's now like having the like end of its, end of its glory days life cycle, just like Catholicism did 500 years ago. Catholicism's still here. But if you look at like the Council of Trent, 1526, uh, in response to like, you know, Luther's big 1520 where the three treaties come out and all that kind of stuff. It, it, it's like, oh, we're not in charge anymore. Oh, what do we do with in response of this? It takes until, you know, the beginning of like the newest, like the birth pangs of the newest shift and Tickle's explanation where uh, you get Vatican II. Vatican II, then like the elder, you know, the, the, the mother of Protestantism that's been running its course goes, oh, we got to open junk up. Uh, Protestantism now is having the experience that Catholicism had uh, with the emergence of the charismatic movement, the arrival of deep pluralism, uh, birth control is one of the features she points Huge. out. Like, it were, it, like you could not have yep. forceful feminism without giving agency to women because guys don't listen. Uh, there's like all these different features going on. You get the shift from industrial-based 
uh, economic system to then being able to export exploitation, right? So we all wear jeans, most of us that were probably slave labor, but it's okay because we don't have slaves in the South. You like, you see what I mean? Like yeah. we, it's all these shifts that are going on and then we're becoming aware of it and we're like WTF. Right. Uh, and then the forms that were handed to like boomers, right? They loved it. It made sense. Oh, post-World War II reality. All oh, this makes sense. Blah, 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 blah. And then all of a sudden there's like this growing awareness. It's like, is someone still buying this? What's going on? And when you're in that space where you need something to grab onto, yeah. that's that image of the rummage cell that Phyllis Tickles pointed out, right? So like Luther picks up stuff from like John Huss, but now he had a, uh, a proto-reformer yeah. who was burned to the stake. But now he has a, a German lord who will hide him while he translates the Bible into German and then print it because he has a printing press. Huss didn't. Wycliffe, you get so, totally. So one of the things I love about that and helping us see this is to go the natural tendency of everyone, because most generations in the 500, there was something that worked is like when it breaks and the other things around you work is for you to go, well, what's wrong with our thing? And maybe you find out, oh, we should have done this differently. But if they're all screwing up and breaking, then Phyllis is like, well, what if? The goal isn't fine-tuning something that's thrilling. It's actually going to the flea market and seeing the wisdom and riches that are there. What would happen if you didn't think survival was figuring out how to make the same system you had work? And, and it went, when she passed, it was, uh, it was very sad because she was so many of the people in the emerging church movements like honorary grandma and she was the one that like talent spotted Nadia both Weber and Rachel Held Evans and all like she was this beautiful soul and like a southern uh fire feminist saint like in all that mixture but I feel like that kind of wisdom is one of those things that lets you exhale like what if you're at a time where you don't even have a solution and what if faithfulness is figuring out I don't know where I'm going to plant every foot, but what, what if you figure out how just to plant one foot and you start to gain traction because you're a part of our, our religious traditions, a couple thousand years old, the human species, 500,000 years old, right. the cosmos, billions, right? right. Like the mo- and, and I feel like that historical perspective means like as parents, when we don't know how to pass it on, or as adults, like, how do I be faithful and I can't even find a place where I'm accepted in a community or all these kinds of things that go like, no, nah, like, it's like you're in a dust storm. We've had all these single crop farms, industrial farming, and now it's got a giant dust bowl. And if you're just trying to figure out how to do a single crop farm in a giant dust bowl, that's dumb. But you know what happens after all the dust bowl is over is all the topsoils all mixed up and it's in different places. And then you learn the things actually grow when you have multi-crop farms and you do all these other ways of envisioning relationship. Yeah. And so I, one of the things I think that's helpful from Phyllis is don't demand something from yourself that the moment in history you find yourself in isn't built for. So plant your foot. But what happens if your grandchildren and great-grandchildren have uh, get to be a part of the three or 400 years of like finding a new rhythm? Yeah. Because it's not the rhythm and it's not the institutions, it's final. It's the flow of the divine that meets us in all of it. And that shift is important. 
So I'll answer a little more succinctly. I'm not sure. Um, your last question was about being written in history. I have, I probably, most likely, definitely not. And I don't give a shit about that anyway. And the third question, the second question was what? What did you ask for the second question? It was like something about deconstruction. Well, how the deconstruction movement fits in the larger shifting. Oh, yeah. So here's my just like 30 second unpacking of this. The reason why I'm not convinced that the deconstruction explosion is like, is the thing, it might be one thing in a, in a series of many, but like statistically right now, while yes, evangelicalism in America is shrinking, it's growing globally. The AG has actually risen as far as attendance, charismatic, the, that movement is exploding in the global South. So, I, and we are one of the largest exporters of this like fundamentalist religion. In fact, the reason why Brazil had a freaking insurrection is because of what we're exporting to people in Brazil. There's a whole connection there. I interviewed one of the scholars of, uh, in Brazilian history on this when that happened. So I am, I'm not sure. Um, it could be the beginning of, of like many, you know, little chops at, at the root, but I, I think that for me, what's important is not like, oh my God, are we realizing the historical moment of what we're in? Because I think history tells that story. It's like, what do we do right now? And how do we do our, whatever we can do in our either own context or our social media context to push the needle forward. And then hopefully from there, one day we can look back and say, oh, I'm so glad that we were able to help push things. But we can't underestimate the size, influence, and scope of this like evangelical fundamentalist machine that is now only growing in power with politics. I mean, it's always been there like since the 80s with Jerry Falwell and stuff like that. But with Trump, it's a new breed because you have folks like the NAR, New Apostolic Reformation, that's very charismatic, that's like really embedded with that movement. And they don't, I don't want to go on rant about Christian nationalism, but very briefly, sure? just so we're on the same page. Christian nationalism does not give a shit about pluralism or about democracy. They have no problem ruling from a minority position. This is why Roe v. Wade was overturned, despite every religious group except for white evangelicals being for Roe v. Wade staying in power. Because evangelicals know if they can get people in the courts through their money and their billion-dollar war chest, they don't give a shit about what the, the majority might or might not want. So I am not convinced that our explosion, which certainly has raised a ruckus in evangelical circles, is actually rippling beyond that at this moment. But I do have hope that hopefully this can kickstart um, or be the lighter fluid for a larger thing in the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years. There we go. Let's go to another question if we have any. Yes. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so the question is, can we summarize what beer camp might look like? So we just went through the schedule actually yesterday. So the format that we're on a schedule level breaks down into a couple main sessions where everyone's kind of in this room, actually, that we're actually in right now, and listening to one or two people talk about different topics. So we have structured the questions around like, how do we approach the Bible? And then we have actual like scholars of religion and of the Bible talk about ways we can approach that might be different. And then we have breakout sessions that people can choose in their own free will. So we could have a, a breakout session on topic A and topic B at the same time. And you would go to a smaller room with two podcasters and in theory, two scholars who would discuss that in groups of like 20 or 40, but it's a little more intimate. So that's kind of how the vibe is. But one of the things about beer camp that's nice is that there is like no real green room or anything. So like everyone's just kind of walking around. So you can just flag down whoever you saw speak here and be like, hey, I loved your talk so and so, but yeah. I also had a question about this. And they are 
I have noticed something about you scholar folks. Scholars are like, wait, you're interested in my work? Sure, I'll talk to you about it. Sure, I'll go on your podcast. And the perk is it only takes one question to get 20 minutes with us. I mean, you have it right here, uh, folks. You're watching it real time. (laughs) Is deconstruction important? Well, let me start from the beginning. I'm like, oh my God, okay. I'm just kidding. I appreciate you, Trip. But yeah, so that's kind of the vibe. It is, in a way, very casual, but also it is structured so people can be in certain sessions that might, you know, be um, more something that maybe they're more interested in and also on friday we have a pretty chill night of just like hanging out we do a cornhole oh we forgot to announce the nighttime thing that's what i was gonna do right now oh yeah yeah, i was glad you remembered yeah and we're actually doing um, a night of music we're gonna have Derek webb we're gonna have what's his name from dan hasseltine from From jars of clay and we're gonna have trey pearson on every day sunday yeah um here on this stage doing a storytelling night so we're trying to bring some more of the arts into so people can kind of reclaim some of those things from their tradition that's kind of the vibe overall. And, and the breakout sessions, so like the main sessions and then the breakouts that are in here are on the 10 topics, people that started deconstructing since 2016. I did a survey of like 3,500. Those topics get covered. Then there'll be another one that's like super nerdy topics. Then there'll be another one that's like a geek topic. So like a, a religion and Tolkien scholar, religion and Star Wars, Star Trek, MCU. They do yeah. a talk, and then there's all these podcasters that do geek junk talking with them. Um, and then there's, in the smaller breakouts, are ones where you may do, like, particular practices or conversation groups or divine doodling, like using art to explore yeah. things. So there's, like, a, a mixture. Um, and then, like, 30% or so at everyone at each of the breaks have just got another drinking cornered other people that, have a topic and don't go to anything for yeah. the breakouts and yep. hang. That was my and, favorite uh, part, Tim by the way. goes home and takes a nap and doesn't listen to my podcast. Well, la- last year, it was nice having the option not to be in a session because I was like so speakered out, like, like sermoned out from people. So it was great just being able to be like, oh, I can just talk to someone behind the scenes or whatever. So that's kind of what it looks like. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, I don't want to, I don't know how long we, I mean, it's been two hours, so I think we're kind of hitting our wall, but any other questions before we start maybe landing the plane? We can do like one more, then we can hang out with people. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. need to go home. Like the can, formal can, time, yeah, yeah, yeah that's we get I mean. to like cut that off. Oh, also there'll be group karaoke uh, during beer camp. There'll be a sword drill where you can win a high quality sword drill trophy. Yeah. Be a cornhole tournament. Um, I may be trying to find locally sourced Wookiee costume to put uh, Tim in. <laughs> so when we do karaoke, if you Google on the internet, you can find a video. We lost a bet with Trey Pearson last year where me and Tim and Mason had to do uh, DC Talks Jesus Freak for the opening of group karaoke, which two of the three members said we did a quality job. Happy to hear Now, that. I don't know if it was quality in the sense that they are professional musicians give quality, but when it was sheer gusto, jeez, oh, you give church. the man two beers over eight hours Drunk and he can't even. Uh, uh, so there's lots of like little fun things that run throughout. And uh, yeah, well, it's be good. Any last questions? Okay, All right. Fine. Unlike Tim. Mm-hmm.
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You want to repeat the question? What are, What are your sources of goodness, beauty, and truth for you, um, as opposed to this certainty? What's it look like to find them in the face of uncertainty? It, what was your name? Paige. Okay, that's a really fun question. I'll give the short answer <laughs> because I don't want to be judged by Tim and my beer's almost empty. Yeah, right. So, sure. Paige, <laughs> this is uh, the so, short answer. <laughs> well, in that case, <laughs> never, the short now, answer. I so, got to pee so bad, so make this short. Okay, in, yeah. the, in, the, in the West, beauty, truth, and goodness were kind of the immortal virtue of sorts, like yeah. the big things. Uh, my homeboy, Alfred North Whitehead, added adventure and zest. Uh, and zest is like a, a way of describing the way in a moment uh, there's a, always a scale evaluation, right? Like in any moment, there are things you can do and tons you can't because you can't change the past. In the next moment, there are all these possibilities. Mm. And like beauty, truth, goodness, oh, yeah, we should be into that. But then also like what does it look like contextualized to that moment? And zest has to do with like what is the most beautiful, true, and, and good thing in this moment? And then the other is adventure. Like what is it like to risk towards something? And the, the thing that helps me in, uh, you know, there's a long philosophical conversation behind the whole thing, but the thing that helps me about that is you don't get, you cannot change the past. You can change the way you relate to it, but it shows up in every moment. All the past meets you there. Uh, you can't change the power you have in the next moment. Like there are possibilities to you and there are things that aren't. But it, the moment you admit all that, then you're gifted the grace of just what's available to you. And in that space, that little difference between, I don't know, punching Tim in the next moment and not ruining this answer or going too long. I can choose the most beautiful, adventurous, <laughs> and zesty one and go right there as opposed to right here. But like if you choose here, that's now the past, and here's the new spectrum of zest. And so uh, when you realize how narrow your agency is, but how much power you have in habits of responsiveness, then you actually get more agency back. You don't feel overwhelmed by the past you can't change and all the things that you can't determine. You now become a steward of what you do have. And here's the gift of grace. Is it no matter what you do in one moment or in a series of moments, whether you're in Sheol or at the eschaton, each moment the love of God in Christ Jesus is something you can't escape. And that gift of possibility shows up and says, what do you want to do? Hmm. And if we make material the divine insistence, the lure of God, then we start to create habits and rhythms that in a lifetime can bring more beauty, goodness, and truth into being. But if we feel burdened with the responsibility for truth and our hair isn't as nice as Sean McDowell's and our confidence isn't as solid as his dad's, uh, then we get overwhelmed. If we can just say yes to in this next moment, how does it arrive the best we can, then we're more likely to be open to more in the next. And that to me is quite radical. One way of describing it is a lot of us feel responsible for a lot of things we have no power over. Are your three-year-old having a tantrum in a grocery store because they're three? Not because you failed, but you still feel like it. Mm -hmm. Or let's say you're me and you have 
uh, ADHD and certain times a day, the idea of complete sentences in a row of deep focus is a really hard thing. Yeah. Um, and uh, there are all these ways that we don't have. They, and then we feel responsible for stuff beyond our control. The moment you do that and now your identity is this, you get overwhelmed and then you act a fool and you start screaming at a three-year-old. You're like, why are you acting like you're three? You can't have five Twizzlers. And you're like, oh. But if you recognize that you are not responsible for all these other people's free gift of responsiveness to the vine, you're responsible to them with your agency. Then you get to decide, how am I responsible to my child who might be having a conniption, my partner who might be having uh, pain and trauma from something that you don't share, or how am I going to relate to the fact that my blood sugar is low and my kid's still annoying as hell, but I love them, Mm -hmm. or whatever, right? So that Mm -hmm. distinction of responsibility for, responsibility to, releases us to then give our attention to the things we can contribute to, knowing that the God of loving relation meets each of us each moment and goes, do you want an adventure? How about some zest? And, and I feel like those shifts help a lot of the big ideas concress. If you're using a, since page does listen to the podcast, it's a whitehead word, the way everything's where the God and the world kiss each moment with each agent's meeting of possibilities. Yeah. Um, I, that to me has been kind of like the spiritual practice of the larger philosophical vision. Responsibility for versus two, and then how do you relate to your past? How do you respond to the future? And in that space, how do you say yes with the agency you have this moment so you can say yes to more later? Yeah, that's great. My very oversimplistic answer to that question that I've been thinking about is, is, my, is what I'm doing in this moment promoting human flourishing or human harm? And that's been very helpful just to have a very simple litmus test of like, you know, not necessarily pain. You know, if you dislocate your shoulder and the doctor has to reset it, that's painful, but it's, it's working towards a greater good. Yeah. And so I've been thinking about things in that category the past like couple months of like, right, are my actions promoting flourishing of some sort, whether it's, you know, towards the planet or towards people or towards myself or my family, or am I, am I participating um, in ways that are, are harming folks, whether it's dehumanization or it's just like how I'm speaking to my spouse or how I'm thinking about certain things. And even though it's a very like maybe binary way of thinking about things, when you put it in the, in the context of context, like your cultural, the moment that you're in yeah. dictates that it's been very helpful to have like a different kind of almost true North in a sense that's still flexible enough to be able to pivot when you need to based on the circumstance. Because I do, um, I resonate with your question of like, well, if, if I've been given this anchor, even if it wasn't a real anchor, but I thought I had one, and this anchor was this thing I was given of like, this is the, the foundation of like goodness and beauty. It's what the Bible says. Then you read the Bible and you're like, actually, there's a lot of like things I don't want to ever do in this book. <laughs> uh, like just weird things, right? So now like, what's my true north, right? Like what, what is guiding me to do these things that we talk about, these words that sound beautiful? And I, I think for me, it's just thinking about even the idea of sin, like of causing harm. Like that's, that's, you know, I think that's what it is, you know, and I'm, I'm going to say it, but Andy Stanley actually did a sermon on that recently I watched. And I was like, you know, Andy, that's not a bad like way of thinking about this framework of sin that maybe has been hijacked for me. Yeah. We're kind of reclaiming it in a different way. That's like, oh yeah, like the purpose of the reason why sin is sin is because it, it's damaging. It's chaotic, yeah. you know, and I want to participate in cycles of, of heaven on earth, so to speak, instead of the cycles of chaos that we can find ourselves in. Okay. Here's a fun way of ending the podcast. Okay. That was so good. Thank you. I, 
I'm going to give you a sentence of how our friend who will be at beer camp, Roberto Shea Espinosa, says this in their book, Body Becoming. Yes, great but book. I want you to say it as if you actually know what the hell it means because it means what you just said. Okay, good. I'm learning. So, like, you're, you're oh, well, you have Paige has a question. And you're like, well, what I'd like to do is risk one's becoming in the rhizomatic, generative, erotic entanglement of the divine. We should promote flourishing <laughs> and not harm. Rhizomatic entanglement. The, the rhizomatic the entanglement. Of the divine. Of the divine. Yeah, but say it one time. The know, rhizomatic like, entanglement of the divine. Yeah. Erotic, erotic. something. Yeah, divine. erotic. Yeah. Yeah. That's why. <laughs> Friends, thanks for hanging out with us. This was a lot of fun. We're going to, we'll be here as long as you want to be. I am going to use the bathroom. Though. I got to pee really bad. But All yeah, right. thanks for hanging. It's not drink running some, from you. Drink some more leaves. beer and we'll chill for a bit. And you can cut the recording now, Eric.